www.kkbb.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free, 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Welcome to the Bible Line this hour. As always, we welcome your questions and comments as you've been studying God's Word. Maybe you're facing a particular challenge or question in your life or ministry or in your study of Scripture that you would like help with. Well, if we can't help, by the grace of God, we'll do the best we can. All you need to do is pick up the phone, call us locally. The number is 525-1859. We have a toll-free number as well, and that number is 877-924-7478, 877-WAGP980. Either of those numbers will get you through, or you can email us here directly into the studio. The email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. So any one of those three ways you can contact us when you call. Uh, you can remain anonymous and or just dictate your question or go on the air live, however you'd like to do it. Rick, as always, it's great to be here today for the Bible Line. It is indeed, Pastor, and uh, we've got a number of questions that have come in over the last week. I'm looking at the phones. I see a couple of lines lit. Um, looks like they're going to go ahead and dictate their questions. So All right. let's go to one of these emailed questions. A person would like to know if a person is truly saved and serves God for 10 years, but then leaves their calling, do they lose all rewards they may have earned for the 10 years that they served? Mm. That's a great question. Uh, a passage that would come to mind would be found in Second John. Second John's an interesting little book. It's the shortest book in the New Testament. And, um, it's a uh, it's a book that uh, is written to uh, the elect lady, uh, and it's a book that, among other things, deals directly with this issue. Um, let me just back up a few verses to give you a running start into the context. He says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you might not lose what we have accomplished, but what you, but that you may receive a full reward. There's a judgment, of course, that Christians face. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says each one of us must stand and give an account of himself to God, Romans 14, 12. He makes a very similar statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, what we sometimes refer to in biblical theology is the Bema, uh, the Bema was a, a platform in the first century that a judge would stand on when he would evaluate, say, the Isthmian Games. And if uh, Rick and I ran the 100-yard dash and he won and I lost, well, he would receive a wreath, a crown. I would receive nothing. I wasn't beaten or stoned. I just wouldn't receive my reward. Well, 
that's really the uh, the thought among others of the Bema. Each one of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. So there's a day of evaluation that comes. It's not contradictory to passages like John five twenty four or John three uh, seventeen and eighteen that speaks to the fact that we've passed out of judgment into life. That is the judgment for sin. And uh, our Savior on his cross completely and totally paid that sin debt. And if you've received him as your Lord, then that payment has been applied to your life. But there is a judgment that Christians face, not for sin as much as it is for service. God will evaluate the things that we have done in the body, why we've done them, how we've done them, the motivation for doing them. And of course, uh, we will be rewarded accordingly. Uh, There will be a difference in heaven. Uh, for Christians in terms of how well they've invested their life. Christ's exhortation to the church makes absolutely no sense if there were not rewards in heaven. When he tells his people, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves can break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thief does not break in and steal. So we face an evaluation time, eye to eye with Jesus Christ. He will look at the things that we've done and how we've done them and for what motivation. And so, of course, John deals with the fact that there were deceivers who would come in, false teachers, and false teachers like the devil, they're liars, they're deceivers. They try to undo what God wants to do. And sometimes Christians are sidetracked and knocked off uh, center. And so he says, watch yourself that you might not lose what we've accomplished, but that you might receive a full reward. He's not talking about winning or losing your salvation, but their reward for faithful service. And so this is very similar, by the way, to what Peter says in Second Peter 1. Let me just turn there for a second. Second Peter 1, let's see, it's um, in verse 10, he says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. As long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. So some Christians enter into heaven with an abundant supply, with a great reward. Now, I don't know your motivation for asking this question. If you're asking this in light of someone else or yourself, if you're asking it in terms of yourself, like, okay, um, I was a Christian and I served God faithfully for 10 years and And now, you know, as long as I have 10 years credited my account, you know, now I want to, you know, be a little bit slack. And, uh, well, if that's your attitude, that's not a good attitude to have. In fact, you might want to take Peter's advice in the preceding verse uh, to uh, be all the more diligent to make certain of his calling and choosing of you. Uh, Test yourself, Paul would say, to see if you are in the faith. Uh, That should not be the attitude of a true, genuine Christian. But the fact is, is that Christians can get slack and they can lose their reward. Um, So I don't know how God does that. He doesn't give full explanation, but I do know that we can lose what we've achieved. And uh, how the Lord, you know, works all that out, he alone knows he's perfectly just and righteous. And I know it will be done in a way that pleases him and honors him. Uh, But I want to receive a full reward. I want to enter into his kingdom uh, abundantly supplied uh, for his honor and for his glory. Great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-WAGP-980, or online at TBL. 
at WAGP.net. And our first dictated question of the morning, do you think about, um, or what do you think, rather, about theophoist, uh, Theophostic prayer therapy. Theophostic prayer therapy. Uh, this woman read that someone was in this process and the caller wasn't sure if this is a good idea. It's not a good idea. It's uh, it's an idea that is running wild in Roman Catholicism and is now bleeding into evangelical camps. But listen, if you want to learn to pray and you want to learn to pray biblically, then find out what the scripture says. Any form of meditation or theophostic prayer or anything like that if it's not based in Scripture, it's not good. So, again, our final authority is the Word of God. I have a handout uh, in our Discovery Class series on how to pray. And it's not rocket science, but there are some principles that God gives us on how to pray effectively. Uh, what are the principles for prayer? What are the kinds of prayer, whether it's adoration or confession or thanksgiving or supplication? And what are the hindrances to prayer? What keeps prayer from being answered? and so on and so forth. So uh, I would recommend that you just stick to the scriptures and veer away from a lot of the modern nonsense that is being uh, you know, promulgated, not just in Catholicism, but now in evangelical circles. Get that handout. If you uh, call our toll-free number at Search the Scriptures, which is 877-STS-7478, uh, ask for the Back to Basics series, the handout on prayer, and we'll be happy to send you that free of charge, the handout. If you want the DVD, well, you'll have to pay for that uh, to help cover some of our costs. Hope that helps. Let's go to the next question, Rick. All right, 525-1859. And our next question is, uh, do we go to heaven right away as Christians when we die, or are we asleep until the Lord comes again? Well, under the new covenant, uh, the Bible is very, very clear that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So God's word is is crystal clear on that. There's a number of passages that you could reference. One, the one I just quoted in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, absent from the body, present with the Lord, or plain statements like the Apostle Paul makes to the church at, at Philippi. This statement would make no sense if the soul and the body slept. It does not. Paul says plainly, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Gain is more of the same. And uh, if you die and you're in the grave and you're asleep and your fellowship uh, ceases, that's a loss. But there's no loss here. At death, there's a gain. So he says, if I am to live on in the flesh, that is in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, because that's what happens at death. You depart and you are with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is plain on that. To depart is to be with Christ. And that's why he can say to live as Christ and to die is great gain. I have a whole message and sermon on this, if it would help you uh, in terms of what happens when we die. Uh, But the scripture is clear in other passages. Let me give you one other text that might get you stirred up and thinking a little bit. This is in 1 Thessalonians 4, and Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. When he describes the body, he describes it as sleeping. Just like you laid in your bed last night and you got up this morning, well, people are laid in graves, but there's going to be a great getting up day. 
when God will call dead bodies out of the grave, wherever they may be. Uh, We do not want you to be ignorant, and there's a lot of ignorance over death in our day, about those who are dead, those who are asleep. Uh, I know some of the newer translations say dead, but sleep is better. That's the metaphor God uses. That's the metaphor we should use because, again, it's describing the state of the body. That you don't grieve like the rest, speaking of unsaved people who have no hope. They don't have hope. We do. Now, they have manufactured very often a false hope, but we have a true hope. Because he says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's our confession. Even so, and here's the clincher, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. If absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, then the immaterial portion of man goes home to be with Jesus. So God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The Lord Jesus, when he comes back, he will bring with him the spirits of departed saints. The dead in Christ shall rise first. He'll call the dead bodies out of the graves And their spirits that are coming back with him, their soul and spirit will be reunited to the body. Those of us who are alive at that moment, who are here when Jesus returns from heaven, will be caught up together with them, will meet the Lord in the air, and together we'll always be with him. So the Bible does not teach the sleep of the soul. It it teaches that the believer, the true believer, goes home to be with the Lord. That's why it's a game. Good question. Let's go to someone who's waiting live here on the line. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Caller, you are on the air. Uh, yes, sir. Good morning, Dr. Brogan. Good morning, Carl. <clears throat> I had a question. Um, I was reading Exodus uh, chap- chapter 4. I got to verse 24 um, through 26, and I was stuck, and I was wondering if you if you could expound on that. And th- my other question was, um, could you explain... Um, the definition of a reprobate or and an apostate, and I'll hang up and listen to your answer. All right. Exodus 4, let me turn there. Uh, Moses has just had a dialogue with God. Moses said, I'm not your man. And God says, you are my man. Uh, you know, is it not the Lord who made man's mouth, who made him dumb or deaf or blind or seen? Is it not I, the Lord? And then God promises that um, Aaron will be his mouthpiece. And then very, very interestingly, we come to verse 4, and it says, Now it came about at the lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Uh, then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin, that is, she circumcised him, and threw it at Moses' feet and said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. God let him alone. He didn't take Moses' life. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So Moses, for whatever reason, had failed to circumcise one of his sons in Midian. And so Zipporah's act really is an act of, of redemption by which the blood of the boy restores Moses to the Lord and and save their marriage in the process. So he was really a new bridegroom to her. Circumcision, obviously done on males on the eighth day as God commanded. First, he said to Abraham, all the adult men in your household. And then after that, little babies on the eighth day. It was a sign in a covenant that God made with the nation of Israel. It was a bloody little painful rite But again, there's a line of blood that runs all the way through Scripture, whether it's the first death that God created in the universe, 
when uh, Adam and Eve tried to cover up their own sin through their own work or whether uh, we embrace what God did and he kills an innocent animal. So there's a line of blood that goes all the way through and really what baptism is to the new covenant Christian, circumcision was to the old covenant Christian. It was a rite, a bloody little rite that in essence advocated, I believe, God's promise to Abraham that God would bless him, that in his seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed because from Abraham would come the Messiah, the one who would die, be buried, and raised from the dead, the one who would come as the ultimate blood sacrifice. And so circumcision was a sign and symbol that you believed and you affirmed that. Now, obviously, much like baptism in our day, there are people who have been baptized who have never been born again. And so it becomes an empty symbol. And in Paul's day, there were Jewish people who had been circumcised uh, as little babies, but they never really uh, acted on their parents' faith with their own faith. And so they were outwardly uh, religious and circumcised, but inwardly had no change of heart. And that's why Paul says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, Neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. And so he says, if therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically circumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who have... Uh, through the letter of the law in circumcision are a transgressor of the law. In other words, he's saying you can have the outward right of circumcision with no inward reality, just like today you can have the outward right of baptism with no inward reality. Moses, I don't know why, the scripture doesn't tell us, so it would be an argument from silence on my part to say why, uh, but nonetheless he had failed to circumcise one of his sons in Zippor through an act of redemption she takes a flint. She does what Moses should have done on the eighth day, and uh, she saves their marriage, saves Mo- uh, Moses' life, and she becomes like a new bridegroom to him. Great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right. Very good. A listener in Guangzhou, China writes, I'm very thankful to have the opportunity to listen to Search the Scriptures and the Bible Line Online. As an American working in China, I lead a kind of live-action version of the sort of Bible Q&A that Dr. Brogy does so well. Needless to say, I'm listening with rapt attention, trying to catch up and hear every episode. Uh, Because the format is exactly the same as what we're doing here in China, there's no question that doesn't interest me, because I'm always thinking, oh no, what if one of my students asks that? Anyway, on uh, October 4th, uh, you answered a a listener's question about the book on prayer and recommended some authors. Um, And then you reference your tapes that contain your past teachings. And um, you often reference these tapes. Uh, This person would like to very much purchase them and would like to know, is there any way that uh, these uh, tapes might be made available online? They will be made online very shortly. Our new website for Search the Scriptures will go up, uh, searchthescriptures.org. And uh, you'll be able to uh, click on Back to Basic series, and the Back to Basic series um, include a message on how to pray. I-, I believe with all my heart that when a person receives Christ as their Lord and Savior, they need to be grounded in the basics of the faith. 
Uh, Dr. Billy Graham said some years ago that in his judgment, 90 to 95 percent of the genuine Christians in the American church were still babes in Christ. And I meet a lot of people who will sometimes come to our church as Christians. Sometimes they've been saved 10, 20, 30 years. And uh, as I begin to dialogue with them, it, it becomes obvious, you know, they really haven't grown much. Just because you've been a Christian a long time doesn't mean you're a mature Christian. Uh, There are two facets to maturity. One is walking by faith over a period of time. Walking in the Spirit over a period of time produces maturity. And by maturity, I don't mean that any of us have arrived. Uh, We we are to have a grown-up and a growing relationship with the Lord. Uh, But there are two facets, both walking in the Spirit over time. Some people have learned as new Christians as much as they know to obey God and do it in dependence upon him, but they've been Christians such a short period of time, they just haven't had the opportunity to mature. It takes time to grow, and I know there are organizations and denominations and local assemblies that have promised people, if you have such and such experience, you know, whether it's speaking in tongues or being slain in the spirit or whatever it is they're offering you on that particular Sunday, that you'll be catapulted into some new level of maturity in Christ. It doesn't work that way. It takes time to grow. That's why the writer to the Hebrews said, by this time, you ought to have been teachers, but you have need of someone to teach you. You can only take the ABCs, the elementary principles of the word of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. It takes time to grow. Uh, There's no way around that. So you meet some people who are obeying God in dependence on the Spirit, but they've been saved so short a time, you really can't say they're mature. There are other people who've been Christians a long time, sometimes 10, 20, 30, 40 years, but they've not really walked with God consistently in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so they are immature. And so that's the issue Paul deals with, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When he writes to the Corinthian church, he is writing this letter about four years after he had planted the church. And uh, in the third chapter, he says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual as to spiritual men, that is, as to mature Christians, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. And that was normal. That's what should have happened. Uh, He said, when I came and I planted the church and I gave you the gospel, I I didn't address you as mature believers. I I, I addressed you for what you were, babies in Christ. Um, He said, I gave, notice the past tense, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. No problem. That's what you would expect a baby to receive, not steak, but milk. The problem was, is in the next phrase, he says, indeed, Even now, some four years later, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. Since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? You should have grown by now. You should have matured by now, but you're still babies in Christ. So it takes time to grow. So I am deeply committed as a pastor to making sure that a believer has a good, solid foundation. So we have a course at our church called the Discovery Class. It takes 35 weeks to go through. Ten of those lessons are online or will be revealed in our new website coming out later this month. 
and all the handouts and tapes that go with them will be available. That's just a nuts and bolts uh, thing. Um, the, the other lessons are going to be taught and also DVD'd and available on CD, God willing, in the next calendar year. So we're looking forward to that. The, the, the rest of the class deals with apologetic issues. Um, why should we do apologetics? Why is it important? And what are the typical questions that people ask? You can boil 99.9% of the questions unsafe people ask down to about 10 And if you know how to answer these basic 10 questions, you're going to be well-equipped. We teach them in our discovery class, but they will be available on uh, CD, on DVD, and the uh, accompanying handouts uh, very, very soon. But the other lessons are available. One of those lessons is on prayer. And so go to searchthescriptures.org, and you'll be able to get those. Great. Glad to hear from someone all the way from... Guangzhou, China. Ah, yes. Um, we failed to answer the second part of that call-in question a minute ago. The person wanted to know the meaning of a reprobate. Oh, thank you. Um, in Romans chapter 1, Paul speaks of um, you know, the fact that he's coming to the church at Rome to uh, see some gospel fruit and And then he begins to describe this life that is to be lived by faith and why men don't live by faith. And and he begins with the Gentile who is in the depths of sin, and he speaks about the wrath of God that is being revealed, not will be revealed, but he says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. There's a present form of the wrath of God that is being unfolded even in our day. It's far distinct from the future wrath that is coming. But it's that wrath where a man knows God, verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. They don't know God in a saving sense, as Jesus describes in John seventeen three, when he says, this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God in Christ whom thou hast sent. But he's speaking here of knowing God in terms of his existence. Uh, there are no atheists in the world, and you meet people who say they're atheists, and what really irks me is when a Christian says, oh, I was lost, and I said, well, God, if you exist, and if Jesus is your son, I want you to be my savior. Well, you know, that's not how it really happened. That's just a statement of pride, so think your way through that, because there are no atheists in the world, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise— They became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. So they know of God in creation. His eternal attributes, his divine nature are clearly seen. He has said in verse 20 of this chapter through the things that he has created. But even though they know of God in that way through what he has made, they give him neither praise nor thanks. And so they are in a downward slide. They think they're Mr. Smart Guy. They profess to be geniuses, but they're really nothing but fools in the eyes of God because they exchange what they know to be true for a lie. And so here's the wrath of God that is being revealed. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator for this reason. God gave them over. There it is again to degrading passions for their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural in the same way the men abandon the natural function and 
and of the woman and, and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. The old King James says a reprobate mind. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. So someone with a depraved mind is someone who is sliding away from God Almighty. They took the truth they knew about God, and they shook their fist in the face of God, and they said, I don't care. And they said it to God in such a way where, well, as God says in Psalm 103, he won't keep his anger forever. There comes a time when God's anger is released. Oh, it's coming in the future in an eternal way, but it's right here now in the present where the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. And God lets a man become darkened in his thinking uh, because of choices that he has made. Um, professing to be wise, they became fools. Their hearts were darkened, the text says. That's what a depraved mind is. It takes revelation and it squishes it. It says, I don't care what God has revealed. I'm going to ignore it. What's very interesting to me, though, however, is that even the person with a depraved reprobate mind who may even fall into some form of idolatry, whether he's worshiping sex or music or a literal physical statue, as about a third of the world still does. Uh, whatever expression that may take, greed is idolatry. There's another form of idolatry that Paul speaks of. They never ultimately and totally lose their knowledge of God because when he describes these people whom God has given over and they're filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, uh, they're slanderers, they're haters of God, they're insolent, arrogant, boastful, they invent evil, they're disobedient to their parents, they're without understanding, they're untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Then he says, and although they know the ordinance of God, which tells me they've not totally lost their understanding of God's existence and their accountability. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice, practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. They have, in their depravity, in their reprobate, depraved mind, now become evangelists for sin. They not only do them, they try to get other people to do it with them. And that's someone who is really deep into the depths of sin. Good question. Let's go to the next one. Indeed, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us, as this person has, at tbl at net. On the news report earlier this morning, she writes, I heard a story about a woman who bakes cakes out of her home who was approached by a lesbian couple to bake their wedding cake. She refused, explaining to them that she was a Christian and it went against her beliefs. The lesbian couple is now suing her. I was wondering what would be the right thing to do in a case like that. My first response was that I would have refused them too, but then I thought about how could I take that opportunity to pray for the couple the whole time I was baking their cake and use this situation to be a witness for Christ. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I think the lady did the right thing. Uh, she bakes wedding cakes. She doesn't bake cakes. She bakes 
wedding cakes. And so it depends how you define a marriage. And if a man and a woman uh, who make a public covenant uh, to one another before God is what constitutes a marriage, then two women or two men is not a marriage. It wasn't Adam and Steve. It wasn't Eve and Ethel. It was Adam and Eve that God created in the garden. Male and female, he created them. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave not to his boyfriend, but to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So since she's in the business of making wedding cakes, if she made a wedding cake for this lesbian couple, she would be condoning their activity. And she wouldn't want to do that. Now, obviously, I'm sure I want to believe the best here because I know nothing of the details. Um, I'm sure she said it in a spirit-filled way. You know, I love you in the Lord. God calls me to love even my enemies. But I want you to know that what you call a marriage, God does not call a marriage. What the law may call a marriage, God does not call a marriage. The law may say that it's okay legally to murder a little baby in the security of a mother's womb. But God's law says otherwise. So we must obey God rather than men. And my, this will be an interesting lawsuit. Um, I I think uh, this person who has written, you should probably go beyond maybe a local attorney and uh, contact somebody like the Liberty Council or the American Center for Law and Justice, ACLJ, and get them to defend you. They like to take on cases like this. They'll pay your fees. Uh, These are important, critical issues, and this would be a critical lawsuit, and you need some really good, wise counsel and people who defend you because your case potentially becomes a precedent for other cases down the road. Uh, People want to make these things hate crimes or all that kind of stuff. And so get somebody to defend you and let this lesbian couple pay their attorney fees and spend five to ten grand or whatever it's going to cost them to pay some attorney and then lose. Get the best counsel you can. That's where I would start. But you did the right thing. God bless you for doing it. All right. Another listener writes, I was thinking about the gospel story and something occurred to me that I submit here for your review. You know how the Bible says that Jesus experienced all our human temptations and desires but never sinned? You know how your perspective on on something changes when that something happens to you? Uh, You know how when a person realizes they're lost and admits it to God and then calls on the name of the Lord and gets saved? Well, when Jesus was on the cross and took our sin upon himself and God turned his back on Jesus and Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment... Jesus experienced what it was like to be lost and yet did not sin and had not sinned. So Jesus actually knows what it feels like to be lost. The Bible says that Jesus went on the cross out of obedience to the Father and love for us. He endured the scourging and shame, carried his cross, and held himself on the cross in obedience to the Father and love for us. Then at the end, God turned his back on him. I wonder if that at that moment, Jesus' love and compassion for the lost reached a new dimension because he then understood what it felt like to be lost. Well, it's a good statement. You know, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that Christ learned obedience. How does an omniscient God learn obedience? Well, because when Jesus took on human flesh, when Jesus became a man, he chose to live in dependence upon the Father. So there are things that Jesus learned in his humanity, um, and we can't dismiss that. 
Um, certainly when he was on the cross, and there's a certain mystery, when he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, uh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He experiences there in a moment of time the spiritual death, the eternal death that we should know forever in an awful place called hell is an infinite person. He could accomplish in a finite period of time what you and I as finite people would take in eternity to accomplish. And so when the Lord Jesus died, he really dies ultimately of a broken heart. In fact, people are a little bit surprised that he's already dead because usually crucifixion victims don't die that fast. Uh, In fact, um, one historian from the day, Josephus, says that a crucified victim would sometimes last in a cross eight or nine days. This, of course, being a high Sabbath, the Jews did not on Passover want any people hanging on crosses. And so um, the Roman government would work with the Jewish people. Obviously, there's hundreds of thousands of pilgrims who are in the city for that and doesn't want to unnecessarily stir up a riot. And so he concedes to their request to have the bodies removed. Of course, the other two men are very much alive because the way they crucified a person uh, would prolong death and agony, sometimes for days, as I said. But Jesus was already dead. Of course, no one took his life. He gave it. He commanded his spirit into the Father's hand. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. And, of course, they take a spear and thrust it through his side, and there's a sure sign of death as blood and water flow out of what most would consider medically to be an exploded heart. There was an interesting article that was written in the American Medical Association, the AMA, on the the crucifixion of Christ. It was done in the 1980s. Oh, it created a huge amount of stir. Uh, two believers uh, did a physical analysis in the uh, April issue where Easter fell that year of how Jesus died. What was most interesting to me was the next issue that came out. My dad um, was a medical doctor, and so he had the issues on the table, and I always you know, read what I could understand. Uh, But that one caught my attention, and I read the next month that followed, um, and uh, the analysis, I mean, people were up in arms that they would even speak of Christ's death and a medical issue. But it's very interesting for them to do a medical analysis of why uh, blood and water flew out of his side, and some would say that his heart literally burst, and it may have, but I know no one took his life. He gave it. I know that he anticipated this uh, broken fellowship, which I think is really the genesis behind his prayer when he says, Father, if possible, take this cup from me. Uh, the cup, of course, is the cup of God's wrath. What, what Jesus feared was not being crucified. My, he, he practiced precisely what he preached. He says, don't fear, man. You know, the most they can ever do to you is destroy your body. Um, Jesus uh, practiced what he preached. He told his disciples and those of us who are alive today to be prepared for persecution, even if it comes in a physical nature. Jesus was not uh, scared of the cross, but what was really heartbreaking to him, and I don't think we can fully understand it, is how an infinite love relationship could be severed. 
when he would become sin. And the idea of him taking sin upon himself and his sinless soul. Listen, think about Lot for just a moment. Think about what he went through. Righteous Lot. Lot was a, a saved man, the Bible says. Um, now, we're going to meet the guy in heaven. Uh, you may not want to believe that, but the New Testament refers to Lot as a righteous man. And if he, God, condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, if Lot could experience spiritual oppression because of the incredible, sinful, wicked atmosphere around him. What did our Lord know, the sinless Son of God? What kind of oppression did he feel? And I think he anticipated that as he headed to the cross. And uh, there was a um, spiritual suffering that went on in the heart of our Lord and that he ultimately experienced as he became sin for us. Let's go to the next caller. I think they're waiting. Indeed. Uh, Thank you for holding caller. You're on the Bible line. Yes, I'd like to know um, how many places are verses in the Bible that God actually tells the people who wrote the Bible, write this down. Uh, well, there's about 3,000 references in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation where there's an affirmation that this scripture is God, like, thus saith the Lord. Um, it's a phrase that is repeated all the way through the word of God. Um, but in terms of write this down, I don't know. I'd have to, I'd have to uh, pull out my computer concordance to give you an exact number. But there are a number of places. Uh, but understand, too, that when a prophet spoke, thus saith the Lord, he is giving the literal word of God. And, and everything that is, of course, resco- recorded in Scripture is the literal word of God. Um, you know, when you think about Scripture, um, people, in terms of how it was inspired, have taken various viewpoints. Some have taken what's called the dictation theory. And I don't know if that's where you're running with this question, where they have thought that the Scripture was literally dictated, that Paul was sitting, you know, behind a desk or wherever he was writing in, in a prison and Okay, God, what next? And it's like he, like he's a secretary, just, um, okay, what's the next phrase? And he writes it down. I, I don't think it happened that way um, for a number of reasons. Number one, the Bible says that they were moved along by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. And what becomes very evident in the Scripture is that God used various personalities and various writing styles that are expressed through the Word of God. Now, you've got some guys like John R. Rice who said, well, I don't believe in dictation uh, in the sense that there is obviously a multiplicity of writing styles through the 40 authors that have given us the Scriptures. Uh, But he argued that God dictated the Scripture using the various writing styles. He ends up in the same place with the infallible and errant Word of God. But there are a few places where the Scripture is literally dictated, Um, whether it's in the Ten Commandments or when God gives a specific command, write this down. And um, so that being said, for the most part, the scripture that we have that God gave us, which is a full and complete record of what God intended for us to have, 
Um, he wrote through the various personalities um, who gave us the Word of God. It's the Scripture that has inspired the final proof, the final writing, the graphe, that is the inspired breath of Almighty God. You know, Pastor, uh, as we're calling back a listener for our next question, I can't help but think of that uh, uh, instances where Paul says, now I write this, not the Lord, and then the Lord writes this. Is that an example of... Um... Well, a little a little different, but but similar. Um, in 1 Corinthians 7, when uh, Paul is addressing the issues of, um, you know, uh, singleness and married, he said to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord meaning what I'm about to say didn't originate with me. This is something that Jesus taught during his public ministry, and I'm going to echo it. And then a verse or so later, he's going to say, but to the rest, I say, not the Lord, meaning this is not something that Jesus said, but I'm going to say it as an apostle with the same authority and the same um, amount of inspiration as if Jesus had directly said it himself. Let's go to the next question. Someone's waiting. Yes, indeed. From North Carolina, we've got a listener. Thanks for calling. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, good morning. Um, My question is in terms of predestination and election. And I mean, I know it's a biblical doctrine. And if that was the case, then what would be God's standards for creating someone but knowing they would go to hell? Like, I guess, why would he create these people knowing they would rebel against him? knowing their future outcome? Well, it's a great question, and obviously the doctrine of election has baffled the greatest theological minds for centuries. I think there are some things that we can say with absolute authority without stuttering, and one is that the the doctrine of election is a biblical doctrine. Uh, that's not debated amongst Christians. It never really has. What has been debated is not if God elects, but how God elects. Uh, Peter will say, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. How are they chosen? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That you might obey Christ, uh, that you might be a changed person, uh, that you might have new life. Um, So election is according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, there are some people who do a number of gymnastics with the word foreknowledge, and they say, well, that's God lovingly selecting some and maybe overlooking or choosing others for damnation. Look, I don't believe for a second that a little baby, before they ever saw the light of day, that God said to that little baby, you don't stand a chance. You are created as an object of my eternal wrath. You have been created so that you can spend an eternity apart from me in the eternal fires and judgment of the lake of fire. Uh, I don't believe that for a second. I don't think God, uh, I don't think the scriptures teach that. Uh, But I do believe that man is dead in his sin, that God must take the initiative, that salvation does not begin with man, but it begins with God. Jesus made that plain. He said, no one can come to the Father unless the Father first draws him. Paul, in quoting the Psalms in the book of Isaiah, taught in Romans 3, 10 to 19, that there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seeks God. All have turned aside. All have become useless. It's what we call total depravity. That every dimension of man has been tainted by sin. It's not that man is as bad as he can be, but he's as bad off as he can be. It's not that he can't do good, but he's not as good as he should be. 
And so God takes the divine initiative. Now, we may think from our perspective that we began the process, that we began to read books on apologetics, that we began to ask questions, that we began to search. And the only reason we began is because God first began the work in us. No one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. But the question becomes, does God initiate with all people? And I think he does in some way, form, or fashion. Uh, He initiates certainly through creation, through conscience, and through his care. Uh, Those are three aspects of revelation, the creation of the world that we spoke about earlier today in Romans 1, the conscience of man, Romans 2, and his care that he shows and that he allows the sun and the rain to fall on the wicked and the good. Uh, God has made himself to known to all men so that men really are without excuse. Some suppress that truth and so god practices what he preaches he tells us there's time to withhold the gospel pearl and to keep our mouths quiet lest it be trampled underfoot by hogs in the mud and sometimes god withholds further revelation because men won't respond to the revelation that he has given them but light responded to brings more light and god in eternity passed because he has foreknowledge, pro-gnosko, prior knowledge. There's five other examples in the New Testament, undisputable, where foreknowledge means pre-knowledge, prior knowledge. But in a couple of these passages, people want to manipulate it to mean something else. Um, But God in eternity past knew how men would respond to his initiating work. And so Three times in the Revelation, it tells us before the foundations of the world, before God ever even spoke the universe into existence, he had a book with everyone's name in it who would be saved. God knows that. God knew that. That doesn't take away from free will. Uh, If God didn't know everything, God wouldn't be God. God is not learning anything. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Um, God is omniscient. And God, in his foreknowledge in eternity past, knew how men would respond to the wooing work of the Spirit. And uh, based on that, I believe God chose us. He elected us. So it's not a question of does God elect. The question is how does God elect. I think you can say this dogmatically that the whosoever wills are the elect and the whosoever won'ts are the non-elect. Anyway, I hope that helps. Very good. Our next caller would like you to please explain why any denominations that require works or baptism as a condition uh, to salvation are an error. There are so many from these denominations that are so close to salvation but don't quite have the correct theology. Would you please explain? Well, listen, the, the essence of the gospel is for by grace you've been saved through faith and not that of yourselves. It's salvation is the gift of God. It's not of works that no one can boast or brag. God doesn't save us on the basis of our own effort or on the basis of our achievements. He saves us by his grace. And God either saves us all by himself without any help from us, or he doesn't save us at all. It is a work of the grace of God is expressed through the death, burial, and resurrection, what Paul calls the gospel. Paul said, I delivered to you as of first importance the gospel, te evangelion, the good news, uh, which he said is that Christ died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. And he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. So for anyone to mix works with the gospel is to preach another gospel. 
Uh, Paul dealt with this in that false teachers had come into the Galatian church. They knew the gospel. They had embraced it. But the false teaching confused them, not in terms of how to be justified, but how to be sanctified. So Paul brings it all the way back to the beginning. He says, remember how you start and how you started. That's how you continue. And so he says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And we, as we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to a gospel contrary to that which you've received, let him be accursed. The, the Greek word is anathema. It's a very strong word. You could paraphrase it. Let him be damned to hell. Wow, what a statement to make under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. But God, because he loves people, wishing none for perish, but to all to come to repentance, cares about the souls of men. And he does not like false teaching. God tells us in the book of Jude and in Second Peter 2 that false teachers are inviting, storing up for themselves wrath against God in the day of wrath. Um False teaching disturbs God Almighty. But the Lord Jesus told us, if you remember in the kingdom parables uh, in Matthew 13, it's a whole chapter that really describes what is going to happen and what is happening in light of Israel's rejection of their Messiah. And he goes on and he tells a number of different parables and, and he reminds us, he says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slaves uh, said to him, Uh, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? He said, no, lest while you are gathering the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And then he says, in the time of the harvest, he'll send his reapers. They'll gather, take up the tares, bind them, put them into bundles, burn them. But he'll gather his wheat into his barn. He goes on and he interprets the parable. He says, the one who sows his good seed is the son of man. How does the Son of Man sow seed through people like you, people like me, who are obedient to his great commission, who stand in his place, who are ambassadors for Christ? Uh, He is sowing seed today through believers in the church. And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. So when the tares grow up initially with the wheat, They look very similar, but when the head is full-born and they're mature, you see the distinctiveness between the two. So there's false teaching in the church. There always will be. There are denominations that teach a works righteousness, and our job as Christians is to preach the truth, to be unashamed. Uh, Baptism doesn't save. A denomination that teaches that isn't gross error. They're not close to salvation. They're a million miles away from salvation. So we're out of time. Have a great day.